as an update, too, on uh, Kurt Stevens. He has begun uh, chemo treatment uh, this past week, so you won't be seeing Kurt around here probably till February. Um, he'll be going on, I believe, six treatments with three weeks between. Uh, so I, I'm sure that he would in, uh, appreciate encouraging notes that you haven't forgotten him and things. Um, but he is uh, uh, has been told avoid groups of people, as you would expect. Um, uh, so he's heeding that, uh, which is a good thing. Um, so we are in this wonderful section of Romans, and I was encouraged by uh, Alan Sparks last week as we were we were talking about. It. He said, "You know, it's kind of like when you get to this point in um, a book like Romans, it's almost like you have already taken the ball from the one yard line to the opponent's one yard line, and you're right there on the end zone, and you just get to run the ball in and run it through strong and and score. and And I feel like I get to run the ball." across the end zone every week uh, coming to this place in the book of Romans where it just sums up so well how our walking in a biblical relationship with God allows us to walk in transformed biblical relationships with others. Um, And we get to look each week at one of those relationships, those building blocks of life that are impacted, should be impacted by our walking in a submitted um, offering of worship relationship with God as our Savior. And so as that foundational relationship uh, with God will review here in Romans 12, 1 and 2, where he says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. <coughs> and, and so we've been looking yesterday and today at <coughs> relationships with people that we have differences with, especially within the body of Christ. And, and we need to know what is God's will for us. How does he want us to live within those relationships? We need our mind renewed for that. And certainly, we don't want to be conformed to the world, which either says, well, let's just live and let live. You have your opinions, I have my opinions, what does it matter? Or that we don't want to be conformed to the world in the sense of where we're saying, you know what, if you differ with me on this, we just can't hang out. We just can't uh, have fellowship together. Either one of those conformity to the world would not be right. We want to be transformed in our relationships. And and so we're looking at transforming our differences with each other. Living for Christ should lead us to know how to live with others, even those that we're so close with, yet so far away from on certain issues. You know this with your, if if you're married with your spouse, how you can be so close, but if you come to that one issue that you differ so much on, it can become like, you know, uh, gasoline and fire or, or water and oil. It just doesn't mix. Hopefully, we'll even see guidance in that. But last week, we looked at how the church has always struggled with differences of opinion, even in the early church. And, and there's always trouble in relationships over differences, and this is common to life. And this is certainly the case with people if we disrespect each other's viewpoints. Uh, John Scalzi has, has been quoted as saying, if you want me to treat your ideas with more respect, get some better ideas. 
And, and we don't want to be conformed to that way of, of, of treating one another. Or like the professor that, that asked one of his grad students, he asked him, well, what's your opinion on the current research? And the grad student's response was, it's all rubbish. And the professor said, well, I, I recognize your opinion is rubbish, but what is it anyways? Tell me anyways. And so, in some ways, like I mentioned, the world has the answer of we should tolerate other people's viewpoints or, or let bygones be bygones. And this isn't necessarily, shouldn't be just thrown out like a baby with the bathwater. There's something that we can all learn from the person who cautions relaxing our stance on others' differences. And grace with our differences on non-essential issues, it flows from what we're taught in these scriptures. But I'm going to be very careful to outline what it's not talking about just as much as what it's talking about. I think that's important. So picking up again in Romans 14, starting in verse 1, it says, As for the one who's weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. One person believes he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass a judgment on the one who eats. For God has welcomed him. And just as a small review here, this is describing in the Roman church how they would have a new Jewish believer in Christ. And oftentimes, and this is what they were dealing with, they were coming in and they had all these attachments to these traditions of the, with the Mosaic law, having to do with dietary laws, having to do with um, feasts, certain days that should be respected for feasts and festivals. And they had a tendency to look on those other believers and judge them as being, as being uh, immature believers or unthinking believers because they weren't considering these Old Testament ideas. And so on this side, you had both Jewish and Gentile believers that had set those things aside. These, at least the Jewish believers had set those things aside, and the Gentile believers didn't have any concern about them, I would think. And, and they're experiencing this judgment from these other believers, and they're struggling with despising those other believers. And our passage speaks to both. And we continue in verse 4. Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld. For when, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. He goes on, the one who observes one day observes it in honor of the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. What's important here to note is in these gray areas that he's talking about, it's not about what they do as much as who they do it for. Okay, it's not what they do here as much as who they do it for. Though Paul Paul speaks into this situation, calling the Jewish believer that's holding on to those traditions as the weaker brother. And I, and I think there's, there's a, that points a little bit to their being newer in Christ as well. But it's about who they're doing what they do for. And it, are they arriving at their conviction in relationship with God? So we continue on, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. 
For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. So we have the same main idea here. This is kind of part two of what we've been looking at, that we are to lovingly and wisely welcome the believer with different opinions from us. He says to, to um, regarding this situation, as for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. In other words, don't bring him in saying, saying okay, yeah, come in here, but we're going to tear all those things down. Respect their relationship with the Lord, he's saying. And so as I believe uh, should be as, uh, as a shepherd and a pastor here, uh, it's very important for me to delineate what are aspects of the gospel that we should not be lumping in as gray areas or what are aspects of, of follow, seeking to follow Christ in, in Christian practice and living that, that we should not be lumping in to gray areas. Um, these opinions that are being talked about here, um, the, they have to do with gray areas of following Christ. In other words, places where Scripture is not black and white necessarily. Non-essential meaning, for one, that they don't have to do with the clear teaching of the gospel. Uh, if, if they did, we would see instruction like what is written to Timothy in 1 Timothy 6. If anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of the Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness... He is puffed up and conceit, with conceit and understands nothing. That's, those are pretty strong words. They're strong words having to do with someone who's teaching something that, that, that encroaches on the understanding of, of the gospel and Christ being the only way to God and, and his sacrifice being our only option. Or the idea that we should be pursuing a relationship with God, growing in godliness, growing in in greater uh, devotion to him with our lives. I thought it important, I mentioned last week our statement of faith as a body of believers, and I thought it important to read from our statement of faith what we say, what we agree with regarding the gospel. These are things that are not gray areas. We say we believe that God created mankind to live in relationship with him, but separation came into mankind's relationship with God through sin. We believe that it is only through trusting in God's saving work in Jesus Christ can we be rescued, reconciled, and renewed. We have other statements regarding man's sinful condition, the work of Christ, the importance of receiving salvation that is offered to all people. These ideas of gray areas are not encroaching on what it means to live as a saved person or, or to be a person who is saved by Christ. There are opinions about gray areas of the Christian life. And we're called to welcome 
those that differ with us on these gray areas to embrace into your heart and life, it means. It does, does this mean that we ignore patterns of sin in each other's lives? No. You know, we, we have a statement in our statement of faith regarding pursuing personal holiness. And in that, it summarizes with this sentence. It says, recognizing that any specific sin could be a lifelong temptation and a struggle for any of us, we believe a lifestyle of intentionally practiced, practicing sin is not a condition in which we should live. That from our statement of faith. As I'm speaking of the connection of our passage with the church today, John Stott makes this statement, and I think that it, it kind of helps us to understand why these verses are kind of... Uh, important for us to navigate carefully through. He says, there is a similar need for discernment today. We must not elevate non-essentials, especially issues concerning custom and ceremony, to the level of essential and make them tests of orthodoxy and conditions of fellowship. Nor must we marginalize fundamental theological or moral questions as if they were only cultural and of no great importance. We're called, what we're called to do here in Romans 12, or Romans 14, verses 1 through 12, when it comes to differences between one another in non-essential issues, is to embrace each other, and to embrace each other as those embraced by God. Just a review of these verses from last week. It says, one person believes that he may eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats. Why? Because God has welcomed both of them, is what it's saying. When he says, for God has welcomed him. The him he's talking about refers to both. Those who differ on non-essential convictions should embrace each other as those embraced by God. And this is without judging from those with a restrictive conviction. Ralph Waldo Emerson said, let me never fall into the vulgar mistake of dreaming that I'm persecuted whenever I'm contradicted. Just because we're contradicted by someone else's viewpoint doesn't mean we're persecuted. And that person with a restrictive condition is called to not be judgmental toward the fellow believer. We're also called to embrace each other as those embraced by God without despising from those with a permitting conviction. Another writer says, it's okay to disagree with the thoughts or opinions expressed by other people. That doesn't give you the right to deny any sense that they might make. I, I, I planned to do this and I forgot about it. I was going to draw a tattoo on my arm. And then have long sleeve shirts on, a long sleeve shirt on. So because, and, and at some point in the sermon, roll my sleeves up to reveal it. But I forgot to r- draw the tattoo on, and I forgot to wear a long sleeve shirt. So I figured, well, Lord, you must not want me to do this. But, but it would have been interesting. Because for some of you, you would have been right on, you know. And for others, you, you would have been, what? Doesn't our pastor know about this verse in Leviticus about marking your body? I don't agree with that interpretation of the verse in Leviticus. 
I don't have a tattoo for other reasons. One, it, it hurts. <laughs> no, but, but for me, if simply out of dis- not agreeing with that interpretation of that verse from the Old Testament law, wouldn't be a right for me to just charge forward with that and just be like, yeah, eat it. I don't care, you know, and despise someone that I might disagree with. And and I've seen this interaction before. I've seen uh, one of you say to another, I don't agree with that, but it doesn't matter. I love you. And that's what it should look like, right? That's what it's talking about. What does it look like to embrace without judging? What does it look like to embrace without despising? When someone else has a deeper or or more restrictive conviction. Understand something, and we're going to get into this. We're going to see this. Both parties have a conviction. One is a restrictive conviction. One is a permissive conviction conviction. We'll see that in these verses. That's different than our American evangelical approach to these issues. Jane Goodall said, my mother always taught us that if people don't agree with you, the important thing is to listen to them. But if you've listened to them carefully and still think that you're right, then you must have the courage to live by your convictions. I I would add to that for us as believers if we've listened to our brother or sister and we still believe that the Lord is leading us in this way, we must have the courage to live by our convictions. The question these these opinions should boil down to are these. What does Christ want you to do? And do you care? What does Christ want you to do? And do you care? We're called to embrace each other as fellow servants of Christ. We see that in verses 4 through 9, and that's what we're going to camp the most here. We're going to read through these verses, kind of observing it as I believe the Roman church would have been receiving it. And then we're going to pick up two ideas that I think we need to hear specifically from these verses. He says, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It's before his own master that he stands or falls, and he will be upheld, for the Lord is able to make him stand. One person esteems one day is better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. As I mentioned, when we talked about esteeming a day that has to do with, um, in the Old Testament law, they were called to, to uh, devote Saturdays to the Lord, the Sabbath, and the early church began worshiping on Sunday in honor of the resurrection or having to do with feasts or festivals which were commanded in the Old Testament law. In regard to that, we see here it says, who are you? And you is in an emphatic position. It means, as for you, who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? And note, throughout these verses at this point, Jesus is referred to as the Lord, the Lord. Emphasizing his position as our master, as well as our savior. And these ver- the differences between believers on issues that are non-essential to the gospel, 
It's not about what, how we want to live. It's about Him and allowing Him to direct us individually as our Master. And notice again, just as He says, for God has welcomed Him. He's talking about believers. He says, and He will be upheld. For God is able to make Him stand. And He's using a term that He'll refer to later, referring to standing before God at the judgment seat of God, which is a judgment for believers. He will stand. Warren Wiersbe says this, the strong Christian should judge, the strong Christian was judged by the weak Christian. And this Paul condemned because it was wrong for the weak Christian to take the place of God in the life of the strong Christian. God is the master, the Christian is the servant, it is wrong for anyone to interfere with this relationship. Uh, we are visited by family at different times and such, and sometimes we'll have some cousins come and visit that I can hear it in the, in the back, you know, down the hall, or, or my kids will be like, uh, you know, I'm, I keep dealing with this. It'll be kind of like uh, my kids will do one thing, and, and it's like, you're allowed to do that? Why are you allowed to do that? You're allowed to watch that? Why are you allowed to watch that? You eat that? Why do you eat that? And in some ways, it's the same situation as what's being described here between one servant judging the servant of another. And he's talking about undermining that relationship. And in some ways, it's undermining that relationship of of father and son and and parents to child. And um, in some ways, kind of saying, telling them, you should question what your master is telling you here. He's saying, who are you to do that? In many ways, the Christian who is imposing their viewpoints on another, thinking they're helping their relationship with the Lord, is keeping that person from following the Lord. And that's what we're saved to do. We're saved to be redeemed in our relationship with God again, to walk in relationship with them again. People's relationships with the Lord are harmed when you impose your convictions on them in gray areas. And this undermines their relationship with Christ. Now, understand something. We're not talking about speaking into the life of an immature, haphazard believer. Okay? And we'll get there. We'll talk about that because, again, both parties here are supposed to be working under conviction. This isn't about drifting, a person that's just drifting through life. The assumption from our passage uh, for the Roman believers is that those on differing sides are doing so out of conviction, fully convinced. And continuing the description of Jesus as the believer's rightful Lord, he writes in verse 6, the one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. Again, the assumption here of writing to the Roman believers is that those on differing sides of gray areas are doing so according to their master's leading, according to the Lord's leading, as is written in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. He says, for none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. 
So then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. It harkens back to what we've learned in Romans 6 and verse 4. You were, there, you were buried, therefore, with him in baptism into death. And that's not it. There's a purpose to it. In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. He's not just the Lord of the dead. He's not just the Lord of the people that think, you know, I've received Christ, so I've secured my retirement home community, you know, and the pastor's my travel agent, and, you know, he's telling me how to live, and maybe I'll get that gold, that uh, gold star club, you know, uh, accommodations. No, he's the God of our living as well as our death. Christ is the Lord of both the living and the dead. He deserves and expects to guide your life as your master now. And with Christ as our Lord, we need to be convinced of his direction and embrace each other as fellow servants of Christ, fully convinced before the Lord. You see that there in verse 5? Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. It happens very often that two different believers have different opinions on a matter, but without much study. Right? That, that's, that's an everyday thing. Without really looking into it, without much study, there's just different opinions, and, and it can drive a wedge. John F. Kennedy said, Too often we enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of thought. Too often as believers, we... Enjoy the comfort of opinion without the discomfort of study, without the discomfort of prayer, without the discomfort of seeking the Lord. That is not what's being talked about here. He's describing parties that are fully convinced, not stubborn. They've been convinced by the Lord. The important idea here is that all believers should be fully convinced and following the Lord's leading of their conscience. What we're talking about here is conviction in a gray area. And by conviction, I mean knowing what God wants from you and connecting your behavior to the way that God is leading you. In a quote, comparing convictions and opinions and the difference between them, one writer says, opinions are what we hold while convictions are what hold us. Conviction, opinions are what we hold, while convictions are what hold us. Another one says, another writer says, to do what conscience allows is always right. To do what it questions is always wrong. And this will be summarized at the end of our chapter where he says, therefore whatever is done Whatever is not done in faith is sin. I want want you to notice here, though, this is not an emotional response or an emotional decision. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. This is very different than American evangelical Christianity in dealing with issues of conscience. Okay? Typically, 
the response for someone who has a, a permissive approach to something is their response is, well, I'm just not convicted about that. That's not what's ta- being talked about here. The person saying, I'm just not convicted about that needs to realize God has called you to be convicted to do something just as much as he's calling you to be convicted not to do something. And you need to work that out closely in your relationship with him. Do you see how a person who's just not convicted to do that, what they could be dealing with is a very seared conscience. And they're just not convicted about anything. It's a very dangerous place to be. I, I've shared with you how um, I, I enjoy this uh, radio drama of spy stories from like World War I and World War II and things like that. And, and so often they'll sneak in to like the French underground. What they had done was to sneak in a, a shortwave radio to an f- underground agent like in the French underground resistance movement or something. And, and they would tune that radio in to the correct station and they tune it in to the correct voice to get the correct message. And they needed to make sure that they were getting the correct message. And it, if the message said something like, okay, so all of you in the underground, take your shortwave radios and turn them in at the nearest Gestapo station, they could pretty much figure out they're either on the wrong station or they're listening to the wrong person. But they, they would listen. They would need to know the voice of the messenger. They would need to understand the code, the words that were being given. And it's not like they were saying, well, I'm just being told what not to do, but I can do whatever I want otherwise. Whatever might contribute to the movement. Whatever I feel like doing, and I'm just being told what not to do. Well, that's ridiculous. No, they're being told what to do and what not to do. And that's what's being communicated here about our relationship with Christ. So how how do we... Just simple steps in being fully convinced. Three simple steps here. One, check it by God's word. If it doesn't fit his larger strategy, if it contradicts what he says in black and white, keep praying. Follow his word first. Second, cross-check your interpretation of God's word and how it applies to you in that situation with another brother or sister. Third, continue to pray, asking God to help you to discern your motives and your intentions. Be fully convinced in gray areas of following Christ. And the other assumption that's made of in the Roman church and in the writing to them that I think we need to kind of hammer out together as a body is that differing believers are fully dedicated to Jesus as their Lord. We're called to embrace each other as fellow servants of Christ, fully dedicated to honor the Lord. The intent here is whatever is done is done because the person believes it brings greater glory to God and greater closeness in their relationship with him. The sense here is that there should be a devotional nature to whatever we do, being convinced uh, to, to, to abstain or to do. So, so whether it be, I, I will watch that movie or I won't watch that movie. I'll watch that TV show or I won't watch that TV show. I'll listen to this music or I won't listen to this music. I'll go to these places or I won't go to these places. I'll be with this person or I won't be with this person. The idea here is that I am fully dedicated to the Lord and I am going to do what he leads, what he tells me. 
In the same sense, there should be a devotional nature to everything that we're convinced to abstain from it. Recall in John 21, after Jesus' resurrection and his appearance and, and his restoration of Peter as an apostle, and he tells him, follow me. And they go walking down the beach, and John, the apostle, is following them. And, and Peter uh, looks back and says, well, what about him, Lord? What is Jesus' response? What is that to you? You follow me. What is that to you? Don't worry about him. You follow me. As I said earlier, two main ideas here that are important. Do you know what Jesus is saying and do you care? You can reverse that also. Do you care and do you know? When we got uptight over another believer who's fully convinced that God wants them to do differently than us, we should hear Jesus say, what is that to you? You follow me. Whether you choose to observe Lent and fast from something or disregard Lent, both should be an offering of worship. Whether you choose to stay away from alcohol or partake of it par- uh, responsibly, both should be in honor of Christ's leading. You know, some would never get a tattoo because their body belongs to the Lord. Others will get a tattoo because it reminds them their body belongs to the Lord. Does that blow your mind? Some of you homeschool out of a deep conviction and leading of the Lord. Some send your kids to public school out of a deep conviction and leading of the Lord. Neither should be done simply out of a fear that you could never do the other. That's not a leading of the Lord. See how differences of conscience can transform these opportunities for us to dig deeper into our Lord's desires and his direction. They bring us back to 12.1, Romans 12.1, that we should be living, presented as an, a living offering of worship. Lord, what do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? Are you fully dedicated to honor the Lord with your life? Is that where you start when it comes to issues of conscience? I saw a really, really interesting uh, TV program about a week ago. And it was about (coughs) tanker ships or or, uh, shipping boats and how they uh, go through the Panama Canal. And what interested me was how they were talking about how mass, the massive engines of these tugboats and maneuverability of these tugboats. And the tugboats were so important because as a tanker ship came into the harbor and came into addressing the Panama Canal and stuff, they would empty their bilge water because it was going to be too shallow and they needed to empty their bilge water out and raise the draft of the ship far above sea level. And the problem there is it raised the rudder far above sea level. And so the, ship had, the captain had no control at that point. And that's where the tugboats would come in and communicate and they'd tug on the boat and they'd nudge the boat into its proper place. I thought that was fascinating. Usually when I'm fascinated by something I'm thinking, Lord, there's an illustration in that, I'm sure. And there is. There are times when you are coming into a tight spot. There are times when maybe maybe it's an issue of temptation or it's an issue of trial. 
uh, there's times when um, I am, you know, I or Pastor Jeff or one of the shepherds, we're, we're trying to make a decision on something. We, we realize this could offend, this could, this could cause trouble, or this, I, this could come across the wrong way or something. And, and I'll call Jeff and I'll be, be like, I need you to check me on this. Really, I'm asking him to be a tugboat for me. There are times when you're coming into a trial or a temptation and you need to contact a brother or sister and you say, I need you to to help guide me through this. It could be a great opportunity. There are times when you might be a boat out on the open sea and a brother or sister uh, sees your rudder is way above sea level. You're adrift. If they love you, they're going to come in and they're going to tug and they're going to bump and they're going to guide. This is like what we're ta- called to do in Galatians 6.1. Brothers, if any of you sees a brother or sister caught in any sin, you who are spiritual should restore them, keeping an eye on yourself in a spirit of gentleness. And so we're not talking about someone that is just adrift. Well, I'm not convicted about anything, so I'm fine. especially for us in leadership. That's when we feel called by the Lord. Come in and start bumping. Come in and start tugging. Because even though the captain of that ship thinks, I've got a full control. No, that person's adrift. And drifting can be a very passive-aggressive form of rebellion against God. And all of this should be out of a desire to follow Christ's lead. In the gray areas, mature believers live lives that are dedicated to the Lord and they live according to how God convicts them, convinced in their minds. And they challenge and develop and live according to their convictions and they challenge others to do so. And the last thing we see here, and we're not going to spend much time on this at all, but you're called to be aware of the account that you will give. To be aware of the account that you will give. It says, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you, why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Now, picture, it's like you've had those situations with maybe if you have kids, uh, in, in your home and you've had those situations where you kind of got to bring them face to face with each other. Sometimes um, we have to do that with married couples. Okay, and, and that's kind of the situation where he brings the two parties together and he's saying, why do you pass judgment on your brother and why do you despise your brother? The reason that he's saying, why are you doing this? This is all going to get handled by the Lord one day. This is not talking about you helping a drifting brother or sister. Okay, this is not talking about, I, well, what J.D. said is I got to go it on my own. I got to just, I just got to dig into my relationship with the Lord. This is not intended to discourage you from getting help in walking throughout your relationship with God. This is talking about two parties fully convinced before the Lord, believing they're fully hearing from the Lord. He's saying, why are you judging Why are you despising? The emphasis here is each of us is going to give an account of himself to God. 
I and shepherds in this church and you, you as parents and in different situations, grandparents, we're all in unique situations where to some degree, we'll, I believe, we'll also give an account to other people. Or, I'm sorry, for other people. Just as, as we're taught in Hebrews that shepherds are, are those who keep watch over the f- souls of their flock as those who will give an account to the Lord. But each of us in these areas of conscience, he's saying, you'll stand before the Lord one day on this. Just to remind you, there's different judgment seats, okay? This isn't talking about uh, giving, being judged for your sins in the sense of the penalty of those sins that were laid on Christ. There, the great white throne of judgment is described as the one that unbelievers will have, not having the payment of Christ's death applied to them for their sins, they will stand before the Lord and receive the penalty due. This will be done out of of the full weight of the offenses against God and His righteousness. That's the great white throne of judgment that unbelievers will stand before God at. This is talking about the judgment seat of God. It's also described in 2 Corinthians 5.10 where it says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what has been done in the body, whether good or evil. This isn't talking about receiving the penalty of your sins. This is talking about what you receive will be affected by what is done in this life. Both good and evil will affect that. How we interpret non-essential issues of conviction will be addressed. It will be one of those issues that God addresses. How we treat others with convictions different from ours will also be one of those issues that God addresses with us. How we treat that other person. And remember, we're called to embrace that. Sometimes, I mentioned sometimes we as leadership, we need to be that tugboat. And Jesus lays out a process of church correction in Matthew 5. And, and let, me, let me walk you through that in light of these thrones of judgment. Okay? Uh, the judgment seat of God, of believers, the great white throne of judgment for unbelievers. In this situation, as I mentioned, like in Galatians 6.1, we're called to come to a, to a brother or sister and say, I think you need some restoration here. I think there needs to be some correction here. What Jesus calls us to do is for one to go to them and, and to say, you know, are you thinking through this? Are you seeing this clearly? It seems to, that you are adrift here. And if the person is just not seeing it, if the person is, 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 it definitely seems to be adrift in their convictions, then the person, the believer that, can, to, that goes to correct them is called to go get another believer and say, I got a witness here, and they are giving testimony that, they see the same thing as I am that you're not seeing in your life. And if the person still continues not to listen, what Jesus says is go and it says tell it to the church, which many interpreters uh, receive that as let the leaders of that church uh, go to that person. It says tell it to the church so, and if they refuse to listen to them. And so for the leaders of the church to go to that person and say, brother, sister, we see this adrift. You, th- 
we all agree, you need to listen. (coughs) You need to seek the Lord on this. (coughs) He says, if they refuse even to listen to the church, one of the conclusions that Jesus says, he says, treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. And so in light of this, it's, in light of these judgment seats, I see it in this way. First, we're going and seeing, brother, this is something that's going to come up at the judgment seat of God. Just as the way we treat you right now is going to come up. But your decisions, the life that you're, the pattern you're living here is going to come up. And, and because we love you, we want to help you to correct that now. And it goes all the way down the line <coughs> to the point where the person is just not listening to anything. And Jesus says, treat them as a tax collector and a sinner. What I hear by that, it's not saying you may never show up at this church again or anything like that. It's saying, okay, there's another judgment seat that we think you have to be concerned about. Because we're we're concerned that there's no work of the Holy Spirit here. That there's no turning, that there's no conviction. You need to be, we, we wonder if you need to be concerned about the great white throne of judgment. Because the evidence that you have a relationship with God would be the Holy Spirit within you that should be knocking from the inside out right now. Now, again, does that mean the person, you never have them come to church or anything? No, because an unbeliever needs to hear the gospel. They need to have the impact of believers in their lives. They need an evangelistic impact. And and so these gray areas, does that mean they're nothing? No. Uh, But we are called to to follow Christ as our master and our Lord. We're called to be fully convinced, working from convictions. And that's kind of how it plays out as I see it. Let's bow our heads. Great and mighty God, it's amazing that you are all-powerful, ever-present, that you keep planets hurling through space in their perfect place, and yet you can work on the intricacies and the motivations and the intentions of our hearts. And you can know them and you can lead them. Lord, I pray that if anything, people hear anything from this message, it is that you want to guide us. You want to lead us. You want every uh, option that we have to drive us deeper in our relationship with you, to, to, to seek your leading. We pray, Lord God, that you are there to lead us. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.